The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning to you. It's Tuesday the 16th of July. You're watching Squawkbox and these are your headlines. Wall Street ekes out another record close, but caution remains as investors await clues about the health of the economy from the earnings season. The chorus of criticism grows over Libra, with U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin warning he has serious concerns about potential criminal use of the digital currency. The candidates bidding to become Britain's next prime minister take a harder stance on Brexit, as UK Chancellor Philip Hammond tells CNBC he's ready to fight any plans by the incoming government to pursue a no deal. I will be fully supportive, but if the new government tries to drive the UK over a cliff edge called no deal Brexit, uh, then I will do everything I can to stop that. Ursula von der Leyen faces a make-or-break-it vote today to become the next head of the European Commission or tip the bloc into an institutional crisis. Well, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. The U.S. markets extended gains yesterday. We saw all three major indices hit fresh record closes. In terms of the sector breakdown, we saw yesterday tech, consumer discretionary, and consumer staples all saw fresh record closes. Small caps, on the other hand, underperformed and energy lagged all sectors. Now, as Steve mentioned there in the headlines, this week is all about corporate earnings. We started to get some through yesterday, starting in the banking space with Citibank, which came through. Uh, Overall, we saw profits beat expectations. But in terms of the setup for the rest of the U.S. banks, trading was weak uh, yet again. So uh, underscoring worries for investors that traders haven't necessarily been able to capitalize on the swings in volatility that we've seen over the last month. Now, as the week ahead progresses, we've got a number of earnings coming through from various sectors, including Netflix and Microsoft. So plenty to look out for in addition to more bank earnings. Let's Take a look at Asian markets uh, next. Uh, overnight, we are seeing some fairly mixed moves, but overall, very muted movement. Shanghai Composite is currently trading uh, a little bit in negative territory, down a 0.1%. The Hang Seng in slightly positive territory, and the Nikkei 225 down about uh, 0.7%. Remember, Japanese markets were closed yesterday, but overall, a, a fairly uh, muted session coming together in Asia. Let's move on to European opening calls that we, uh, of course, uh, will be paying close attention to those earnings on Wall Street. We've also got to European leaders voting on Ursula von der Leyen today, as I mentioned in the headline. So uh, a lot of focus on that later on today. And we've also got the tech hearing taking place uh, in Washington. So we'll keep an eye there. But it looks like, uh, according to these opening calls, we're in for a fairly muted start in Europe, fairly mixed picture as well, with the FTSE 100 and uh, the CAC looking at a negative start, while the DAX and the FTSE MIB are looking at slightly positive uh, moves higher at the open. Thank you, Okay, the uh, president of U.S., Donald Trump, says U.S. tariffs are having a, quote, major effect on China after the country's second quarter growth slowed to its weakest pace in 27 years. In a tweet, the U.S. president claimed thousands of companies are leaving China for non-tariffed countries, adding Beijing wants to make a deal. He said America was receiving billions of dollars in levies 
suggesting the tariffs were being paid for by China and not the US taxpayer. There's a lot in that, isn't there? Let's unpack that in a few moments' time. UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, though, told our US colleagues he hopes an agreement can be found between the US and China. The problem has to be solved. Um, the Chinese have to accept that there are some things they need to do uh, differently. Uh, and we very much hope that this, there will be an amicable um, solution. I think if the two presidents can get together, they can fix this. Do you hope that? Do you expect it, though? I hope it and I expect it. I know from talking to both sides that both sides really do want a deal. There's a genuine desire on both sides to get this fixed. It's very important for the rest of us as well, because China and the US are the two largest trading blocks. But for the rest of the world, a great deal hinges on this and the fallout the damage will be huge if it's not fixed. The chances of the Trump administration intervening to reduce the value of the dollar are increasing, according to some Wall Street analysts. A note released by PIMCO suggests currency wars have flared up again and, quote, direct intervention by the U.S. and other major governments or central banks to weaken their currencies can no longer be ruled out. We'll go unpack that again in a few moments' time. Uh, for more on that story, head online to CNBC.com. Right, Thanos Van Bakidis is global head of G10FX strategy at Bank of America Merrill Lynch Global Research. Good morning, Thanos. How morning. are you? Right, OK, I've promised that I will unpack lots of stuff this morning. We will unpack it as a triumvirate this morning, wading through the quagmire of government intervention and FX markets. Markets. I have a theory. I have many theories. Um, one of them having been to a lot of G meetings. In fact, I'm off to another G meeting this evening. Uh, this one's the G7 in Chantilly, which will give you coverage of. Yeah, nice direct here. Um, easy jet. Um, <laughs> not as nice. Um, but very nice for some. Um, but um, I have a theory that actually these domestic facing policies that governments and central banks uh, partake in actually are done with a little bit of a wink and a nod to what, what might happen to the currency. But the secret here is don't tell anyone you're aware of what the currency might do on the back of it, because that would be called intervention. That would be called manipulation. But as long as you say to anyone, we're doing everything we're doing because it's for domestic factors. It's for our own economy. Nothing to do with the uh, currency as well. Then you can get away with it. It's when people suspect you of doing it to loosen your currency or make it easier against other uh, international currencies, then there's the problem. How do you feel about that? Actually, I agree with your theory. Uh, if we think about it, every single central bank is easing monetary policies from already very loose monetary policy stance. Now, they cannot affect really the borrowing cost because interest rates are historically extremely low. So the only way in which they can ease further monetary conditions is to weaken their currency. However, what we have, it's a bad equilibrium because when everybody is doing it, and then currencies don't really move, you don't benefit anything, and you end up wasting very limited monetary policy ammunition without much of a result. So in a way, we are in a currency war, although nobody has admitted it. Mm. Does it work? Does it work when you aim to loosen your credit? Does it improve that balance of payments? Does it improve your capital account? Does it improve your exports to such a degree that it is worth diminishing your currency and potentially taking on those inflationary aspects as well? Not the way it is done today. Now, in theory, if you are in a situation in which your currency is overvalued beyond the fundamentals of your economy, and then you can intervene to weaken your currency, and usually such interventions are effective if they are coordinated, if everybody agrees. 
And at the same time, you address any imbalances that led to this situation in the first place, then it works. And we have examples in the history. The way it is done today, uh, actually the side effects are much more negative. And again, if we look at the effects, what has happened this year, nothing has happened. It has not moved. So everybody is trying to move their currencies, but because everybody is doing at the same time, and then nobody benefits. And the uh, collateral damage of all this is that international policy coordination suffers. Now, in terms of the U.S., if they were to try to move to abandon their strong U.S. dollar policy, would this put them in breach of the G20 commitments? Or is there a way to, to, to do this that doesn't put them in breach? Now, that's a good question. Uh, I personally strongly disagree with what the U.S. is doing and targeting the currency directly. However, the strong dollar policy is something that the U.S. should abandon. It makes no sense. No other country has it. It was introduced in the mid-90s. It is symbolic. The U.S. has done nothing to support it. And actually, it is justified in a very strange way. The argument is that the U.S. economy is strong, therefore the dollar should be strong. They may as well replace it with a strong growth policy. But it doesn't. But you just said it doesn't mean anything. So you might as well say it if you, you know... It is symbolic. It's like me saying I'm the best cricketer in the world, you know, and, and just believing that, but actually doing nothing to make myself the best cricketer. And quite frankly, it's, it's beyond my remit anyway. I'm probably <laughs> the worst cricketer in the world. So the people have tried to be cricketers But, but anyway. what if you are the best player and you say it? You don't need to say it. In this case, the US economy is a strong economy. It has been historically strong. As a result, the dollar most likely will be strong. So you don't need to say it's it. It's got nothing to do with that. You know this. It's because it's the world's reserve currency and people have to use it for all transactions. And because they're heavily invested in the US debt market as well, there are a whole host of reasons why people use the dollar and why people buy the dollar that have got nothing to do with actually the individual dynamics of the US economy, haven't they? You know this better than I do. There are many factors. However, you don't have to say it. And if today the US is to come out and say we abandon the strong dollar policy, this will have a symbolic impact. And we believe the dollar can weaken between 5 to 10% which, by the way, will bring it back to equilibrium because the dollar is overvalued just, just today. Very quick, isn't it a very dangerous thing telling people you don't care about the strength of your currency as well? Isn't it dangerous? And doesn't that encourage a whole host of speculators who are flush with cash looking for the next trade to just see, OK, you've dropped that. Let's see how far we can push down your currency. Let's see what that does to your terms of trade. Let's see what that does to your balance of payments. Let's see what that does to your debt markets as well. This is true. Communication will be extremely important if the U.S. goes this way. They should make it very clear that this does not imply that the U.S. has a weak dollar policy. They should make it very clear that the dollar will be strong if the U.S. economy continues being strong. But the U.S. does not necessarily have to target a strong U.S. dollar. So communication will be very important. And there is a risk, actually, that if they go this path and they mishandle it, then it can backfire and it can actually cause a full-blown currency war. Mm. All right. uh, Well, we'll leave it there. We'll uh, have plenty more time to chat with you. But now let me just uh, highlight for you some of the moves we saw yesterday in the corporate earnings space, starting with Citigroup. Shares in the bank lost ground during the U.S. session to close flat despite a 12 percent jump in second quarter adjusted earnings per share, beating expectations. The U.S. bank got a boost from lower operating costs and a strong performance in its consumer lending division, shrugging off concerns over a weaker economic outlook. But revenue at Citi's fixed income and equities trading units fell during the period as CEO Michael Corbat flagged a, quote, uncertain environment. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up on the show, it's make or break it time for European Commission nominee Ursula von der Leyen. We're live in Strasbourg after the break. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. The two men competing to be Britain's next prime minister have agreed the Northern Ireland backstop is, quote, dead. In a debate, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt said the mechanism designed to avoid a hard border would not feature in any new deal with the EU. Speaking, as we mentioned earlier, to our US colleagues, UK Chancellor Philip Hammond said he will oppose a no-deal Brexit when he returns to the backbenches. I will not continue in this role under the new government, but I will continue to take a very close interest in... Uh, Brexit and the way it's managed and in the UK's international uh, trade and commercial affairs generally. Uh, and I will continue to be a member of Parliament. The new government, the new Prime Minister will have a majority of two or three in Parliament and I'll be one of them. So a lot of power rests in Parliament going forward. You're suggesting you, you might make life difficult for the next Prime Minister? That's not my desire. I want to work with uh, the new Prime Minister, the new administration, so long as they are focused on doing the things that will strengthen uh, uh, the UK economy and make it resilient in the future, I will be fully supportive. But if the new government tries to drive the UK over a cliff edge called no deal Brexit, uh, then I will do everything I can to stop that happening. Meanwhile, Ursula von der Leyen faces a crucial vote today to become the next president of the European Commission. In a few hours' time, the German nominee will deliver a speech in Strasbourg in a big bid to win over enough MEPs. Now, Sylvia Amaro joins us live in Strasbourg. Uh, Sylvia, Ms. von der Leyen has tried to win over uh, these, uh, these leaders yesterday, making a series of promises to try to get the socialist and liberal lawmakers on board to support her. What are the chances that she succeeds in today's vote? Well, we've seen a mixed signals from the different European lawmakers. And so I have to say that the outcome of the vote this evening is still up in the air. We still don't know whether she's going to manage and get the 374 votes that she needs in order to become the next European Commission president. But who is Ursula von der Leyen? She has been a defense minister of Germany for about six years. She, prior to that, she served in other ministries, in other German ministries. And so she's a long-standing ally of the Chancellor of Angela Merkel. And her name emerged after marathon talks in Brussels between the 28 leaders of the EU between the 28 heads of state. But the process did not end it there. And so in order for her to become the next commission president, the lawmakers here at the European Parliament need to approve her name. And so yesterday I spoke with different European lawmakers here on the ground. And this is what they told me about Ursula von der Leyen. In typical EU fashion, we have the prerequisite of commissioners, someone no one's ever heard of. 
someone with a failed track record domestically. Renew Europe is cautiously optimistic. We we see a lot of progress from the letter last week, uh, from the from her stance last week in the meeting with the group and in the our discussions with her to the letter that she sent us. Our challenge to the candidate was that she should buy into that kind of a change agenda. And we were utterly disappointed because she gave only very vague answers. The uh, United Left is not going to vote for uh, Ursula von der Leyen. Well, you know, she's the candidate of no one. No one across Europe, whatever the party they're from, has actually designed, uh, chosen her. Um, she's, she's the candidate of multinationals, of the lobby. We are really confident that uh, uh, our colleagues from the different groups will be very responsible. There will uh, be a majority in favor of the nomination of Ursula von der Leyen. But we are also conscious that this is not an easy process. As you could hear there, there are different views about Ursula von der Leyen. The, the, the Green Party, the leftist group as well, and the Brexit Party too have said that they're not going to support her to be the next president of the European Commission. So let's see if she gets enough votes from the socialist family, from the liberal family, as well as from her own political group, the center-right EPP. But I have to say that this vote is quite important in the sense that the next Commission president will have a key role when it comes to international trade, when it comes to fiscal policy, as well as a Brexit. And if she does not get approved later today at 6 p.m. when the lawmakers vote on her name here in the European Parliament, then the EU will enter uncharted territory. We could see an institutional crisis because the European Parliament has never rejected the name that the 28 heads of state have put forward to become the next Commission president. So let's see what happens later today at 6 p.m. local. Um, but I have some sympathy, Sylvia, for those who say that she represents the status quo as well, for those who are saying Europe needs massive changes and somebody who has been a key part of the status quo in the Merkel government for so long does not represent change as well. One thing I've been struck by, but when I've talked to the commission, um, um, vice presidents or whoever it may well be over the years, is none of them think it's the commission's fault for all the problems that are going on in Europe, for the fact that we don't have CMU, the fact that we have structural imbalances, the fact that north-south divides are as great as they ever were, in fact, probably greater in some ways than when we had the, the adoption of the euro, the fact that Brexit has been a pig's ear as well. What chance that someone from the status quo, as much as I admire Ursula von der Leyen, she's been a really nice person to speak to on and off camera for many years as well. What chance that someone like her, though, will take on board the criticisms that the problem is itself partly the commission? Great question, Steve. Ursula von der Leyen has made different commitments over the last week in order to convince the lawmakers that she is the right person. And we heard her saying that she wants to make changes when it comes to climate, when it comes to fiscal policy. When it comes to fiscal policy, actually, she had an interesting remark uh, in one of the letters that she sent to the liberal families that she supports full flexibility in the fiscal rules in order to support growth-friendly uh, economies. And so that perhaps... 
could uh, could help Italy in the ongoing uh, standoff over the budgetary discussions over between Rome and the Brussels there is. And so she has made different commitments. The, the question really at this stage is whether she's going to convince all the lawmakers here that she is the right person to deliver on those promises. But as you you know very well, we've heard from uh, the more uh, uh, the Brexit party, from the leftist party as well, that she's the not she's not the right person to take uh, to essentially deal with with issues about inequality and about the the differences in income that we see across Europe. So let's see what kind of present issue she is going to be. This is the first battle that she has to overcome the European Parliament getting support from the lawmakers here. But then definitely there are a lot of challenges ahead if indeed she becomes the next commission president. Thank you very much indeed for that. I got accused. Uh, lovely Tuesday. Uh, Thanos, I got accused by um, uh, one of our guest hosts uh, on Twitter of being a pessimist because I, I published some of the IIF debt figures earlier on as well. and say we are in the abyss. Just say just don't ever let it be said that no one warned you on CNBC or elsewhere. Anyway, and he said, I'm such a pessimist. And I said, no, I'm a realist about this as well. So talking about Europe as well, am I being too pessimistic to look at the challenges facing someone like Ursula von der Leyen or whoever gets the job as well and saying these look insurmountable at the moment, given the current psyche of the commission and indeed the leaders of Europe? Not really, because we have to acknowledge uh, the challenges ahead of us. Uh, the European economy managed to go through uh, the crisis without really addressing uh, the causes uh, of uh, the crisis uh, itself. And uh, the recovery has been very weak, particularly the data has been weakening for the last uh, two years. The ECB might be pushed to further uh, unconventional uh, policies. So uh, whoever takes over uh, the commission uh, in the months and years ahead will have to address these challenges. Now, there are solutions. So if Europe manages uh, well, then uh, uh, we're going to see a better economy. Uh, if they don't, actually, uh, they might be into trouble because uh, these are challenges that could lead to a situation even worse than uh, the Eurozone crisis that we had in uh, the past years. So as you just said, it looks as though the ECB is heading down an easier path. You just outlined that the U.S. dollar also looks like it's heading down a weaker path that when it comes to certainly the policy stance that the Trump administration is, is outlining. Does that mean that you prefer the euro here to the dollar, even though we are you know, facing this backdrop of lower rates for longer in Europe? Now, the paradox is that uh, you can justify more action for the ECB than for the Fed, but the Fed has more policy room and can be much more effective. So on balance, although the eurozone data is much worse than the U.S. data, we actually prefer the euro from the dollar. Valuation also helps. So our euro dollar projection for the end of the year is 117. It's a cautious projection, uh, but uh, is relatively bullish. The equilibrium is between 120 and 125. Both of them will be easy, but the Fed can do more. Is there a better place to be then outside of these two currencies? I mean, neither of those uh, strike me as particularly compelling. Um, it, it's just sort of the least of all evils, uh, the way you've just outlined it. No, it's a good point. Actually, although we're bearish on the dollar, euro is not necessarily the best uh, currency. We prefer at this point uh, high beta mm -hmm. currencies. We like Aussie, we like CAD, uh, we like uh, the Norwegian uh, Kron. These are currencies that can do well in an environment in which the U.S. data is not that bad. But the Fed and other central banks are easing policies. You see what he did there? In my previous answer, his previous, he slipped in something absolutely huge and we didn't spot it. But now I've just remembered what you just said. 
We could have a worse crisis, a worse Eurozone crisis than we had in recent years as well. What's the catalyst for potentially a worse Eurozone crisis than we had 10 years ago that some of us still believe is still there? The reason I'm saying that is that if we look at the periphery countries, and particularly in Italy, the debt today is much higher than before the Eurozone crisis. The debt dynamics are worse, and the ECB has less policy room. So if you get a new shock, a new recession, uh, if trade war intensifies, the periphery, particularly Italy, will be much more into trouble than 10 years ago when we got the Eurozone crisis. Um, and there isn't much that the ECB could do to help. Um, what could Madame Lagarde do then? I mean, is there anything, or whoever takes over the ECB, I presume it's Madame Lagarde. Has she been approved yet? I don't know. She's part of the package. Part of the package. Oh, part- so if von der Leyen doesn't get approved, Frau Lagarde doesn't get approved. Uh, Frau, uh, Madame Lagarde, I should say. She's not German. Yeah, her um, approval is tied, I believe, to von der Leyen's approval. Oh, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? You lose it all or you... Uh, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, yeah, so packaging. what could they do? Um, honestly, not much. Um, many people believe, actually, that Lagarde's experience will help her get a consensus for uh, better, more supportive fiscal policies uh, in the Eurozone. I'm sure she will make the argument, but this is not her decision to make. This is something that the Commission, for example, will have a much more important uh, role. Definitely, we need to revisit the fiscal rules, which most of the countries, anyway, are still violating. And uh, actually, Germany should clearly uh, ease fiscal policies. This is where fiscal policies are the tightest. And this is actually where the data has been the weakest recently. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.